good morning again. I don't normally do that, do I? That felt weird. Anyway. Yeah, I'm pretty consistent with that. So, (laughs) this morning, I want to ask you to think about yourself or somebody else in the context of just one more. Okay, that can manifest itself a lot of different ways in a lot of different situations and a lot of different people. Have you ever, okay, Oreos, right? Right? Just, just, just one more. And then the whole middle row's gone out of the package. You're like, oh, shoot. So then I'm like, just one more row now, right? We just up the ante. Yeah, one more pack, whatever it takes. I know that uh, that's a common uh, drinking refrain. Well, just one more, just one more. I've heard that's a lot of country songs right there. Just one more. How about when you've given and given and given and given to somebody and they ask for just one more? Is that frustrating? When you feel like you've done everything you can do and then they say, hey, hey can, you, can you do this too? Just, I just need to ask you one more favor. It can be a little frustrating, can it? Can it? Well, this morning, we're going to look at the scribes and Pharisees, and they're going to ask Jesus for just one more, one more sign. One more, just, just, just one more. And I've been pretty quick to jump on these Pharisees and scribes this week, and I've been convicted as I've done that because they are we, and we are they, if we're not careful. But their example is written down in the book for us as an example of what not to do. And this morning we're going to see what not to do, and then by the grace of God, through the Word of God given by the Son of God, We will know what to do in light of what they should not have done. So if you would, please stand this morning as we read Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 42. I really thought about trying to finish Matthew 12 this week. and I'm like, let's be honest. We just, no, we'll just stick with these five verses. So as we stand, I would ask that all of us individually and all of us corporately would center and focus our attention, our affection upon these words because they're not just words. I would ask us to collect ourselves and understand that this is God. This is, this is God speaking to us this morning and there is nothing greater, there is nothing better. And so we solemnly Read and hear and receive these words. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. 
The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Let's pray. God, I am reminded and convicted again this morning that something greater than Solomon, something greater than the Queen of the South, something greater than a sign from heaven is here this morning. Help us, God. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to receive your word. Your word which is the very power unto salvation for those who believe. Convict us, draw us, save us this morning, God, for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One more. Then, the, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher... We wish to see a sign from you. (laughs) Wow. So the opening of this verse is the word then, which again, so so Matthew-esque, is is a time stamp, right? It is saying that this happens after what just preceded it. So this, then, that. And what preceded this verse? Well, Jesus had just absolutely disarmed the Pharisees after they had attributed his healing a man who was blind, mute, and demon-possessed, to Jesus operating in the power of Satan. They attributed Jesus' work, his power, to Satan. Jesus condemned them, and I mean condemned them, and their blasphemous double-mindedness, and spoke of the coming judgment upon them for that blasphemy. It was a royal beatdown, to say the least. And so... How do the scribes and Pharisees respond? Well, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him. Mm. Jesus dresses them down and then they answer Jesus. Maybe not the best move. But what after what just happened, they had to be kind of like, I don't know if they were caught off guard. I don't know if they were defensive. I don't know what their posture is exactly. But they answered Jesus. So yeah, you, you do you, Pharisees and scribes, whatever, whatever works for you. And watch them be them here. What do they say? They say, again, are you ready for this? Their answer to Jesus after He disarms them, dresses them down, wears them out, condemns them. They answer and they say, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. <laughs> wow. Now let's look at this for just a bit here. First note what they call Jesus. Teacher. They recognize Him as a rabbi, one who teaches others, one who has disciples, but that's all they see Him as. And like we've seen in the past exchanges with Him, it would seem that they not only think He's a teacher, but that He's a false teacher. They've shown that in their response to what He's done all through His ministry and especially in this last episode. They think Jesus is fake. They think He's false. Demonic even. But they do recognize Him as a teacher, but surely not as Lord. 
which the lepers responded to, right? Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. But not these Pharisees. Teacher. They address him as teacher. And what do they answer him with after the skewering that he just gave them? Again, are you ready for this? Teacher, they say, you just called us blasphemers. You just condemned us to eternal hell. We wish to see a sign from you. (laughs) Now, what? A sign? I mean, really? They do not seek to justify themselves to Jesus and His condemnation of them. They're not giving a defense for who they are or what they've just said or what they've just done. No, they wish for a sign from Jesus. Now, what in the world is up with that? How many signs do you think that Jesus has performed in their presence up to this point? I almost went back and started counting them. But it's foolishness. It's crazy talk to go back and try to lay it out, even what's recorded. Because we don't have time to recount all the signs that we've seen in the course of things in Matthew from the beginning until here in chapter 12. There's been a lot. And at times during these signs, some signs were punctuated with the statement that said, and Jesus healed all the sick people there. Which infers that many, 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 many signs weren't even recorded that He had done. John puts it this way in John 21, 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did where every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now not to sound disrespectful, and I hope that don't come off this way, but Jesus was literally a sign-producing, miracle-working machine. It was in the very fabric of His public ministry. He performed signs and wonders over and over and over. So why in the world would the request of the scribes and Pharisees to meet His rebuke be that they ask for a sign? Just one more. Well, in the parallel account in Luke 11, and we'll see this again in Matthew 16 when we get there, there's a, just a little little inference here. This is Luke 11, 14 through 16. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute. That's what we just saw in Matthew. When the demon had come, gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled, but some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Now you see the little bit of two things there. First of all, they're doing it to test Him. And second of all, they're not just asking for a sign per se. Because signs can be faked in their head. Signs can be empowered by the devil to do, they think. But they're asking for a sign from heaven. In order to test Him, they ask for a sign from heaven. So Luke's account includes those two qualifiers at the beginning and end of the request... It's to test them, and they're looking for a sign from heaven. Now, this is pretty interesting. What they're asking for is a decisive, once for all, heavenly type of sign that would validate all of His other signs, all of His other miracles. They're asking for a a super sign, something cosmic maybe, that would validate all the other miracles that could, in their minds, these other miracles, could have come from the devil. So show us something that proves that you're from God. That's what they're saying. 
Now, they're obviously wrong in attributing these signs to the devil, but they're asking Jesus to prove His proof of divinity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You might be able to heal blind people. You might be able to raise dead people. You might be able to deliver demon-oppressed folks and all. But can you prove to us that this is all real? I mean, really, really real. The grasping at straws, right? Can you show us something from heaven? Something that is just so doggone amazing that we will just all stand and clap and say, Yes! Yeah, that's God! In actuality, they're not expecting anything from Him. They don't believe He can do it. So they're trying to expose Him. Remember, they're, they're testing Him. To point, they're trying to point to His inability to ask the impossible of Him because they do not think that He's anything special, it seems. So yeah, go ahead and impress us, Jesus. Give us some fireworks, Jesus. Pop them off. <laughs> giggle, giggle, jab, jab. Do what we know you can't do. It's like me asking one of my kids to go pick up my car. Do you really love me? Go pick up my car to prove it. They don't expect him to do it. They don't think he can do it. Do what we know you can't do. And if by chance he did do something signish, well then maybe, maybe we would believe him. Maybe. No. And how does Jesus respond to this? <laughs> they took the wrong route. Let me just say that. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Hmm. So we start this verse with that famous contrastive conjunction, but... That in and of itself points to Jesus not playing their game. He's not going along with what they ask. And He's not going along and letting them think that He may be what they're accusing Him of. So, but He answered them. He does address them, but you get the feeling it's not going to be good for Him, right? He says first, an evil an adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Now, any shades of gray there? Any, any question about what he's saying? Is that hard to decipher? No? Well, let's just ask a general question. Is this response a, a positive or a negative one for the scribes and Pharisees? It's negative, right? Okay. We're just, we're just stating the obvious right now. He's not honoring the request for a sign, but is rather lumping it in with evil. Your request for a sign is evil. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. So he's saying that they are evil and adulterous. He is again determining that they are what they are accusing him of being. They're evil. They're evil. He's already said that. He's also saying that they're adulterous. Now what's that mean in this context? I think we're pretty clear on what adultery is, right? Adultery is having relations with somebody that's not your spouse. Well, over and over again, God refers to Israel as His bride. And what do they do in that analogy as God brings it up? They play the whore. They go after other gods or after worldly pleasures, which makes them what? Adulterous. 
He's saying the nation Israel, especially the religious people of Israel, have forsaken their relationship with the true God and have aligned themselves with someone or something else because if they truly knew God and saw Him working like He was working in and through Jesus, they would not need a sign. They would see the signs clearly and attribute to Jesus the Messiah-ness that is evident in Him, and they would worship God for what He was doing. But in not seeing and knowing Jesus, they're worshiping a God other than Yahweh, and so they are adulterous. Those who know God and who are in intimate relationship with Him do not need a sign. They hear the words of God. They see the activity of God and hear and see them as signs from God Himself. But not these scribes and Pharisees. As Jesus has gone about working sign after sign and miracle after miracle that did validate who He was and what He was doing, they attributed it to Satan. They've spent their time trying to discredit Jesus and thus Jesus' father and are thus playing the whore like their forefathers before them. So, will Jesus give this evil and adulterous generation the sign that they are asking for? Well, the answer is yes and no. But no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So now what's that mean? Well, he he says no sign will be given except one. You want a sign? I'll give you one. He's not going to rain meteors out of the sky or make the clouds dance a jig or anything like that, but he will give them a sign. No sign except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Well, what's that about? Well, I guess most of us are familiar with the biblical account of Jonah, right? If you're not, stay with us. We're going to cover some of it. Jesus gives a quick explanation of what He means in verse 40, and then we'll look look into it ourselves. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the sign that Jesus will give this evil and adulterous generation is like what happened to Jonah. So Jonah was a prophet of God. This is back several hundred years before Jesus. And God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. And if your only recollection of this story is through Veggie Tales, read the Bible. Anyway, I'm sorry. Yeah. Jonah was a prophet, but he really never got it. There's the Veggie Tales, it had to come out. Jonah was a prophet of God, and God told him to go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was the capital city of the nation of Assyria. And if you know anything about biblical history, the Assyrians will come in sometime after Jonah and wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel. So they're enemies of the Jewish people. And God told Jonah, go to Nineveh, go and preach to the people there in the nation of Assyria, in the capital city, preach to them, telling them to repent and turn to God from their idols and their cruel ways. Well, Jonah, being a prophet of God, knew too much about God. He knew that if he went and preached the message that God wanted him to, these stinking Ninevites would repent and God would forgive them. And the Syrians, like we said, were the enemies of Israel and Jonah did not want his enemies to be forgiven. People of God are strong, right? (laughs) So instead of going up to Nineveh, he goes down to Joppa. 
He takes a boat toward Tarshish, which is on the opposite side of the known world from Nineveh, as far as the east is from the west. And and he goes down in the boat and he goes to sleep on the trip. While he's asleep, God sends a storm on the sea because he's mad about Jonah, doing what Jonah did. And the crew comes down, wakes Jonah up. Hey, buddy, hey, this is bad. You need to get up here. You need to pray to your God to see if maybe he might help us. Well, they end up casting lots to see whose fault the storm is. And Veggie tells they play Go Fish. So, but Same basic idea. I'm all right with that. So they cast lots to see whose fault this storm is, and the lot falls to Jonah. Jonah says, yep, it's my fault. God told me to go to Nineveh, but I ran from him and his command. So, Jonah says, throw me into the sea and the storm will stop. Sailors are like, what? You're a man of God and you're telling us to throw you into the ocean? That's going to make God mad. Jonah's like, no, I made God mad. So throw me into the sea. And after they protest, they end up doing what Jonah says and the storm stills. And Jonah is sinking. And as he's sinking, he calls out to God. And what does God do? God sends a great fish to swallow Jonah. And he's in that great fish how long? Jonah 1.17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three days. Nights. We're gonna sometime we're gonna go through Jonah. That's gonna happen because it's just so good. And after that time, after Jonah's praying to God and worshiping God from the belly of the fish, wow. Jonah two ten. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. <laughs> so Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. So there's that. And Jesus says, like Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now who's the Son of Man? Jesus is. And so Jesus is saying, I'm going to be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. That is the sign that will be given to this evil and adulterous generation. Jesus says that He, the Son of Man, will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights just like Jonah was in the belly of the great fish. What's He referring to? Well, we know on this side of everything, right? He's foretelling His death, His burial, and His resurrection. And He says that is the sign that will be given. Of course, they didn't understand the reference, but Jesus was okay with that. He was telling them what sign they should look for, but He knows that they'll miss that too. They don't have eyes to see. They don't have ears to hear. And so they'll miss the only sign that proves that Jesus is the Christ, which is what the resurrection surely did. The resurrection is God's stamp of approval on the life, death, and ministry of Jesus. And scribes and Pharisees will deny it. They'll refute it, and ultimately they will miss it. And that will prove to be their condemnation. That will prove to be their ultimate downfall. And Jesus tells them as much in the next verse of Matthew 12. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So to understand this, we need to finish out the story of Jonah. So Jonah gets puked up by the great fish. You throw a word like puke in to get people to wake up. Did he say puke? He did. Jonah gets puked up by the great fish. 
and shows up on the shore headed to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was patently pagan and its inhabitants were cruel and they were completely lost. Well, Jonah delivers the prescribed message from God, which consisted of this, Jonah 3, 4 through 10. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's coming, it's coming. Well, so much for fancy speeches, right? How's that for a straightforward message? It seems like it lacks in eloquence and compassion, right? Well, how does it turn out? Look at the next verses in Jonah 3, 5 through 10. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through, uh, and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. So there you go. The pagan Ninevites repented at a pretty underwhelming message, right? If you look back at verse 5 in Jonah 3, we see the absolute key to their repentance. Let me get back there. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Who did they believe? Jonah? Mm -mm. No, 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 no. They were looking at the messenger, yes, but they were hearing the message and understood that the message didn't come from the messenger. The message came from God. And they believed God. They didn't trust in the prevailing wisdom of the age or the culture around them. They believed God. God was at work delivering these pagan Ninevites from His wrath, which was coming upon them if they didn't repent. And when God acted through a piece of fish vomit, the people of Nineveh responded to God. So, back in Matthew 12, 41, which is where we last left our story, Jesus tells the scribes and Pharisees that the men of Nineveh will rise up for the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they, the Ninevites, repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, stop, look, ponder, and focus on this. Something greater than Jonah is here. Now get that picture in your head. It's the final judgment. And the people of Jesus' time who did not believe in Him, who did not repent of His ministry, who asked Him for another sign, are standing before God. And all of a sudden, witnesses are called to the stand. Now realize this is a word picture. I don't think this is how it's going to happen. And what witnesses are called by the prosecution against the scribes and Pharisees and the other non-believers from Jesus' time? Called to the stand the men of Nineveh. What? Yeah, the men of Nineveh are called and they recount how Jonah had showed up, preached his simple message, all of eight words... 
and how they were convicted of their sins, saw their need to be delivered from them and turned to God and turned to the God of the Jews to save them. That's what the Ninevites did, the men of Nineveh. And then the unbelieving Jews are called to the stand and all that God did and said through Jesus is brought up to them and they say, "Eh, we're not sure if that was God or not. God will judge them saying basically, you had your Messiah. You had my son in the flesh doing the works predicted in the scriptures and you refused to believe. And then he's going to point to the Ninevites and say these pagans from Nineveh had a Jewish prophet show up and tell them to repent or judgment was coming and they repented. Their actions condemn you because something, someone greater than Jonah was in your midst and you refused to receive his message. The faith of the pagan Ninevites condemns your lack of receiving your Messiah. Jesus points out that he is greater than Jonah, which of course is easy to see. Jonah was a disobedient, reluctant prophet who was upset that God did forgive the Ninevites. Jesus is God in the flesh, the fulfillment of every prophet's message. Yes, he's greater than Jonah, but these good Jews, quote unquote, missed him. While the bad Ninevites received him through the message that Jonah brought them. Yeah, that's condemning. But there's one more example that Jesus gives that further condemns these sign seekers. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Well, one pagan people group has been shown to know more about God's work than the Jews. And here, Jesus finishes our text from today with another pagan who saw God work and responded in a positive way to God and in a condemning way for the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus calls up a memory of the Queen of the South. This is a reference to the Queen of Sheba who was queen of what we would call Yemen now. That's where Sheba was. The capital was Saba, S-A-B-A. They were the Sabaeans. This account comes from 1 Kings 10, 1 through 10. We need to read that. Now when the queen of Sheba heard heard of the famous Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, which is a great word, retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered to the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to Solomon. King Solomon. So get the picture. This queen from this faraway country caught wind of Solomon 
and how wise he was. And she made a trip just to see if he was as wise as as she had heard that he was. And when she heard it, when she saw it, the text says there was no more breath in her. She was breathless, amazed at this king who was so wise. And she gifted him with gold and very great quantity of spices and precious stones. But she knew something very particular that Jesus points to in His rebuke of the scribes and the Pharisees, which was this. Who had given Solomon that wisdom? If you've been here Wednesday night, we've talked about this. God had given Solomon that wisdom. And she says in verse 9, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord... Loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Now catch that. She heard everything. She saw everything. She got her questions answered. And she attributed that that wisdom to a divine source. And this pagan king worshipped God when she saw what she saw. Blessed be the Lord your God, she said. She blessed God as she saw God working in and through Solomon. Here, this queen of the south, this non-Jewish pagan woman of all things, saw wisdom, saw and heard that wisdom and worshipped the God of the Jews as a result. And Jesus says in our text today that she will rise up in the judgment and she will tell of God's greatness and God's wisdom because she saw it and knew it as she came face to face with Solomon. Now it's one thing to say a pagan's going to judge you. It's another thing to say a pagan woman's going to judge you if you're a scribe or a Pharisee. And Jesus does exactly that. And Jesus, the greater Solomon was right there confronting the Jews with the very presence of God and they stood shaking their heads and their fists at Him. They're plotting to kill Him. And they would be condemned by this pagan woman in the last day because they were missing in whole what she saw in part. She had come from the ends of the earth to catch a glimpse And God Himself had spanned heaven and earth to come to the Jews of Jesus' day, but they refused what this queen readily accepted and worshipped. Damning, condemning testimony for sure. And that's where we end up today. Now, easy to jump on the scribes and Pharisees, dummies. What about us? Where does this passage leave us today? Why is this passage in our Bible? Why has God brought us to this point providentially today? We're going to apply it, hopefully. Three S's. Signs, Scriptures, and Savior. It did that itself. I didn't do that. That's just there. Three S's. Signs, Scriptures, and Savior. Here's our application. First and foremost, signs. I think if anything at all is clear from today's passage is is this. Don't seek signs. Don't. Jesus' words are pretty clear and pretty easy to understand. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Now he's clearly answering the call from the scribes and Pharisees to prove himself by doing this sign. 
But don't we do the same thing? Like maybe we say, well, if God will blank, then I'll believe Him. Fill in the blank. If He'll fix my situation right now, then I'll trust Him. What did we sing this morning? I'll trust you, Jesus, with my life. Why? Because of what He's already done. Or, I just wish God would show Himself in this thing that I'm going through. We find a ton of ways to look for, to ask for, to expect, or even to demand that God prove Himself just one more time so that we'll believe in Him. God, if you'll do this one thing, I'll bless you with the gift of my believing in you. That's the mentality that we have far too often. Like we're doing God a favor by believing in Him. Prove yourself one more time. And then I'll believe in you. You say, well, I don't do that. Well, I do. We do literally make God show us. We, we make God prove to us that He's God and that He cares about us. Because the slightest thing goes off course and God, God must not love me anymore. God must not care about me because He wouldn't let me go through this. If He loved me, if He was truly God, if He was truly good, all the stupid questions that we ask, why do good things happen to bad people? Why do bad things happen to good people? They're not good questions. Because they're focused on my situation. They're focused on my view of what's good and bad. And they're not focused on He who is good. You say, was He mad at me at that? He's not mad at you for that. But you're asking the wrong question. You're asking for a sign. And He doesn't owe you that. Jesus says in today's passage that it's an evil and adulterous generation that asks for a sign. Now, I'll be honest with you. And again, let me open up my, my spirit and my soul here to you. I'd love, I'd love to see supernatural manifestations as much as anybody else. I'd love to see it. Yeah. It's a thrilling thought to see God rout my enemies, to see God miraculously heal or deliver or manipulate some situation for me and my loved ones. And He can. He most certainly can. He's God. He was, is, and always will be omnipotent. That means all-powerful. I'm not saying here and what I'm saying in any way, shape, or form that God can't do anything supernatural. But Jesus is saying that if people seek a sign, demand a sign, have to have one more sign to believe, then that is evil and adulterous. It's making God serve our purposes. It's making God fulfill our desires for our self-assurance. And it's evil and it's adulterous. Because I'm more in love with me than I am with God. And I'm asking Him to serve me and my desires, my wants, my wishes, which are not right. My heart's not right there. Jesus bemoaned the need for signs in order for people to believe. In John 4, 48, when He says this, So Jesus said to him this, 
nobleman whose son was sick. The guy said, please come heal my son. Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And guess what? So many people saw these signs and wonders and they still didn't believe. And in today's passage, Jesus says he'll give a sign that the scribes and the Pharisees are asking, but he's only going to give one, knowing that the scribes and the Pharisees would miss the sign of his resurrection, so it would be a moot point, him doing signs and all. And here's the deal, when we're asking for a sign, we're asking for tangible proof in the here and now that God is who he says he is. And guess what you're going to forget when there's something else that happens up the road? You're going to forget that tangible proof that you saw back there. You're going to forget it, and you're going to ask for just one more. And we know that Jesus was doing sign after sign, miracle after miracle, and it made no difference to these people at all. It actually only hardened their hearts and their resolves, increasing their hatred and opposition to Him all the more. And listen to me, hard statement... It hardened their hearts. It increased their disbelief. And that's what signs and miracles will do for us if that's all we're after. Just going to harden our hearts toward God. We'll start to worship the sign. We start to make the sign the most important thing. Not the person, not the God who's doing the sign. We're like those who cannot get enough who cannot be satisfied with one sign. One sign just leads us to seek another one. Listen to me, church. You don't need a sign. Stop seeking them. If God works them, that's great. Praise God, that's awesome. But if you're seeking a sign to prove that God is who He says He is, stop it. He is who He says He is. How do we know that? That's our second application point. There's no better sign ever given at any time in history than the Scriptures. So point two, signs, Scriptures. Read your Bible. It is replete with signs and miracles. Well, I don't know if I can trust them or not. Then you're in trouble. You're in bad trouble if you can't believe the Scriptures. And you need to go to God and fall on your face and say, God, help me to believe the signs that you've already done. Help me to see what you've already said. And help me to believe it. Jesus talked about three days and three nights being in the heart of the earth. Well, we know that happened, right? Because the Scriptures tell us so. The resurrection of Christ is a historical, physical reality. It's not a story that somebody made up so that we can believe in a higher power bigger than ourselves who works signs and wonders. The resurrection was the stamp of God on the ministry of Jesus that said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Death cannot hold Him because I've approved of His ministry. I've received the payment for the sins of the elect and I'm going to raise Him up on the third day to show everybody that this is indeed my Son. And that resurrection, not one today, 
is the power that you need to walk in resurrection life. I don't need to go over to Calfee's funeral home and see somebody come out of a casket to believe that Jesus came back from the dead. I believe it because the Scriptures tell me it happened. And I believe that the Scriptures are the Word of God and that the God of the Word is the God of resurrection. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Well, where's the gospel found? In the scriptures, Romans 1, 16 through 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You mean we've got to walk by faith? Yes. We've got to walk by faith in the foreordained, foregiven, foretold, completely, completely, completely proven and reproven and reproven and reproven and reproven. We've got to put our faith in that. Poor us. Well, I struggle with the Scriptures. Good. Get on your face and struggle with them in the power of the Spirit before your Father in Heaven who gave them through His Son. And His Spirit breathed the very breath of God into them. Struggle with the Scriptures. Because they are the very power of God. Read your chapter in the morning. That's great. It's good. Think about it all day long. Ask God to help you see what's there. Let it transform your life. The Scriptures, not a sign. We got 66 books full of signs. We don't need one more. I don't need another word from God. I don't need another sign from God. Hebrews 4, for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing through the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. You know what you're going to give an account for when you stand before God? What did you do with my Word? I told you everything that you needed to know there. How did you handle it? Did you believe it or did you not? Which gets back to something we've talked about a lot here recently. I'm thinking about being back there in the back when we were all together on a Wednesday night. Is the sufficiency of the Scripture. You can believe in the inspiration of Scripture, that God breathed it out, that God spoke it, and that what we got is straight from God. But do you believe that He's given us all that we need? In those 66 books, we don't need critical race theory to help us figure out how to treat people. We don't need intersectionality to figure out how to interrelate with races. We need the scriptures that tell us to love our neighbors like we love ourselves. That tell us to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then in those two things, those two things, the whole law and the prophets are summed up. 
You want to know how to treat your spouse? Look in the Bible. You want to know how to bring your kids up? It's in there. You say, well, you talk about this all the time. Good! I wish I talked about it more. You don't need a sign. You need the Scriptures. Immerse yourself in them. Take great pains with them, Paul would say to Timothy. Don't sit and ask for another sign. Open your Bible. And what's the point of the Scriptures? It's exactly what the scribes and the Pharisees missed. The point of the Scriptures is to show us the Savior. You don't need a sign. you got the Scriptures, and those Scriptures speak of the Savior. Look to Jesus in the Scriptures so that you can see the greatest sign, so that you can see a greater Solomon, so that you can see somebody greater than the Queen of the South, so that you can see something so much greater than the prevailing wisdom of the age. Because when you go to the Scriptures, you are going to see Jesus. And that's what you need. You say, well, I don't know. I don't know if Jesus can fix my problem or not. And that is why you fail, Master Yoda would say. He can. Jesus, there's no one like you. All we have, all we need, all we want is you. You say, well, I don't always feel like that. Confess that to God. Pray that when you sing it. God, help me to know that you are everything that I have, everything that I need, and everything that I want, because I don't always feel it. You know what one of the greatest antichrists in your life is? It's your emotions that tell you that Jesus is not enough, that tell you you need deliverance from your situation, or that you need a sign that God needs to work in your situation, or you can't trust Jesus. You don't need a sign, you need the Scriptures that point you to the Savior. Paul says this, this is incredible. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. A wisdom greater than Solomon's. A power greater than the Queen of Sheba. 
is here. Is here. And he is what we need. The scribes and the Pharisees missed it. He was standing right in front of them. And in their minds, they're thinking, how can I kill this person? And in your situation today, whatever it is that you're struggling with, whatever it is you're wrestling against, whatever it is you're shaking your fist at God about, you need Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You don't need an answer to your question. You don't need a solution to your problem. You don't need just one more sign. You see the signs that are recorded in the Scriptures that point us to the Savior and you look to God and you say, I believe and I trust that Jesus Christ is the power of God, that Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God and He is all I have, all I need, and all I want. Or you're just going to ask for another sign and another sign and another sign and another sign and it's never going to be enough. Will you be content with Christ in your situation? Will you be content with Christ in the midst of your hardships and your struggles? Will you be content with Christ in your prosperity? Because that's what Jesus was calling these scribes and Pharisees to. And they asked Him for just one more sign. And something way greater than a sign was standing right in front of them. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. I pray this morning that we don't miss Him. Let's pray. God, it is one thing to say and to sing all we have, all we need, all we want is you. And it is quite another thing to live that out. So we ask you, God, on the authority of the Scripture and by the power of your Holy Spirit, whom you have caused to dwell within those who trust in you and who know you, help us to live out the truth that you are everything that we have, Jesus. You are everything that we need, Jesus. You are everything that we want, Jesus. Help us to know your super sufficiency, your greaterness than any sign that you could give us. Help us to know that everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness has been given to us and is revealed to us through your scriptures. And the signs that we see there, including your resurrection, Jesus are far greater, far greater than any sign that you could give us now in the present or in the future. All that we need, all that we want, Jesus, may it be. And if there be anybody sitting here this morning who does not know you, Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit, convict them of their sins. We are all sinners And we need forgiveness and that forgiveness only comes through the sacrifice of Jesus who took the sins of the elect upon Himself to pay the penalty for those sins. He died. He was buried. For three days and three nights He was in the heart of the earth and then He came out resurrected 
never to die again. And He offers that resurrection life, that power to anyone who would trust in Him, who would believe in Him, who would make Him all that they have, all that they need, all that they want. Help us, all of us, to believe that. And rejoice in it until we see you face to face, Jesus. And we ask it in your name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Stay neat with us if you can, though.